Hi, this is Rachel on Recovery. We've got a special guest today, Boz. He's going to tell us a little bit about himself. And uh, Boz, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Rachel. It's good to be here. Um, my name is Boz. Actually, my full name is Bazil Chivijan, but that tends to frighten people off a bit. So I just go by Boz, B-O-Z. Um, Rachel, I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer since 1993, long time. Um, I currently am the uh, operate and manage Boz Law, which is a law firm in located in Florida. But I uh, represent abuse survivors throughout the United States uh, in civil matters uh, involving abuse. So, and we'll talk a little bit later, maybe about the difference between a criminal case and a civil case. I represent survivors, abuse survivors, in civil cases all throughout the the country. And um, prior to that, I was a prof- law school professor. And, uh, and then back in 2004, I started when I was in private practice after being a prosecutor for a number of years, I started an organization called Grace, which I think you all have had um, Pete Singer on as a guest, who's the executive director of Grace, uh, started that and uh, stepped down from my role as the executive director a couple years ago. Okay. Um, well, how did you start Boz Law? Well, um, you know, I, I was teaching um, at a law school and I realized that um, I, I did not want to continue doing that, but I really had a decision to make. I had a decision to make to either become the full-time executive director of Grace or do something different. And, you know, the more I thought about it, Rachel, I just didn't think that I was the one equipped, best equipped to to take Grace from where it is to forward. I'm so glad we found Pete Singer because he's, he's a really much better role for that job today than, than I would have been. But in the meantime, I started having a lot of people call me who were, were abuse survivors looking for lawyers. Um, they had realized that they could potentially sue a church or a youth service organization or a school based upon the, the abuse that they suffered as a child. And uh, over time, I thought, why, why do I keep referring these cases to other lawyers? Uh, I can do this. In fact, I had done a little bit of that before I became a law professor. So long story short, I made the decision back in about 2000, late 2018, um, 2019, to, to leave the full-time profession of being a law professor and to come back to Florida and to really focus the rest of my legal career on advocating for uh, survivors across the country. And so... Uh, that's why I started uh, Boz Law, and it's one of the most rewarding, humbling, and most privileged jobs that I've, I think I've ever done to, to be able to advocate for uh, such an amazing group of people. Okay. Um, what are some of the most challenging problems in your cases? Well, I mean, every case has, has problems. I think the, the question is not what what are the problems, but how do you get around them and how do you, how do you face those problems? A lot, of, a lot of people come to me having already been to a lawyer and, you know, they feel like the lawyer is always telling them, you got this problem, you got this problem, you got this problem, and to the point where they feel like, okay, you know, I don't, do I even have a case? And, you know, my, one of my responsibilities as a lawyer is to, is to speak truth to my clients and inform them of the law, but also to say, hey, here are some problems, but here's some ways that I think we can overcome those problems. And if there's any group of people that can overcome a problem, 
who's or who are capable of overcoming problems, it's 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 abuse survivors, and so we we do that. We face those problems. Sometimes the biggest, probably the biggest challenge for me in in speaking to prospective clients uh, is the statute of limitations. When a client tells me, uh, excuse me, a prospective client shares with me the horrors that they suffered, and I'm left with having to tell them that they have no legal remedy, not because what happened to them didn't happen, but because the law arbitrarily says that after a certain period of time, you can't bring a case to court and every state's different. And that's a really difficult conversation for me to have with somebody because by the time they finally get to a point of understanding that they were abused, processing that trauma and wanting to hold somebody or somebody's accountable for it, um, and they take that brave step forward, they're told, I'm sorry, but the doors of the courthouse are closed. Um, and that's, that's why we need to have changes in the law. So that doesn't happen with these, with these individuals. What changes in the law do we need to take place to help victims of childhood sexual abuse? Well, the big one is the statute of limitations. Statute of limitations for people who don't know is really the, every state has a law that says, listen, you have an X period of time, a limited period of time from the time that you got hurt to bring a case to court. Some states, it's two years. Some states, it's 10 years. Um, some states, they have no statute of limitations. It's all over the board. So, you know, if I mean, just by happenstance, if, you, if you're a child and you get uh, sexually abused in the state of Vermont, you have, to the, for the rest of your life, the ability to file a lawsuit. But if you happen to be abused uh, in uh, the state of Tennessee, you might have till I don't know exactly the law, but 25 or 26. Um, so it's just, it's really the luck of the draw. Where you're abused may give you the opportunity to, to seek legal um, compensation uh, and other places will not. So to me, the law needs to change. I would love to see a uniform law that's that's consistent throughout the country. Um with and not just with child sexual abuse cases, but with adult sexual abuse cases, we see that in New York uh, more recently. New York passed the Adult Victims Act, which really opened up the doors and, uh, and extended the statute of limitations for adult survivors of sexual abuse. A lot of these, a lot of these statute of limitations laws were put in place before people really had done a lot of research about trauma, and you know our laws need to be informed and. If people understand that somebody who's suffered trauma is the first thing they're thinking of is not running to a lawyer. They're just trying to survive the next day. They may not be ready to talk to a lawyer for another five or 10 years. Why should that person be penalized uh, and have that right taken away simply because some legislator in the Capitol says, oh, we think that's a good amount of time. Uh, so I think the changes in the law as it relates to statute of limitations are some of the most important that need to take place. Some states are doing it and some states are not. Um, okay. How long do these cases usually take? Well, that's a, that's a tough question because every case is different. So, you know, a case might be, um, I might get a client and within three months, the case gets settled maybe because I send a demand letter to the other side and they, instead of going through a lawsuit, they want to just settle the case. 
So it could be settled in a few months. Others say, you know, we, we have no interest in settling this with you. And then we file a lawsuit. And a lawsuit can take, you know, upward of two, three years. Um, I think things have really slowed down since COVID. And so the whole, the, you know, the court dockets are really backed up because for almost a year we didn't even have court. So now all those cases that were backed up then have to start making their way through the system. And then, you know, if you're filing something today, you're, you're in the back of the line. Um, so it takes, it takes a while. I, I would say probably 95% of civil cases end up settling at some point in time. But sometimes they settle a, a day or two before the trial, after the case has been litigated for, for a couple of years. And sometimes, like I said earlier, they settle uh, sooner. But um, so I, I let my clients know this is, this is a marathon and there are going to be weeks, maybe sometimes months, where you feel like nothing's going on. And uh, sometimes you're right. But we're, we're on top of it, and we will get, we will get to the other side. But it's, it is not a fast process, and it requires a lot of patience. But I think a lot of survivors have waited years, sometimes decades, to bring their case. And so a lot of them say, well, what's another two, three years, as long as I know something's being done about it? Um. Before a victim starts a lawsuit against a predator, what are things they should know before proceedings? And uh, what's the difference between going after a predator and civil versus criminal? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the first part of your question, you know, before a victim starts a lawsuit, what are some things they know before proceeding? Well, I think it's really important for lawyers to help explain the system, the process to the client. Most of our clients are not, um, they've never been to court before. And sometimes lawyers do a bad job in assuming that everybody's been through the process before, but most of them haven't. So explaining the process, being there to answer questions, trying to empathize with clients, understanding that this is a very tremendous moment in their lives. They're scared. Most of them are scared to death. They're pretty intimidated by the process. And sometimes they don't even feel like, asking questions, not because they don't have questions, but because they don't want to bother the lawyer. And I said, you're not bothering me. I want, this is your case. That's what's really important for me to, to communicate to my clients is that this is not my case. This is your case, which means that we're going to move forward with this case and you're in charge. I'm going to be your advocate. I'm going to be your lawyer, but you have to be the one empowered to move this thing forward. And I think that's really helpful. And it's really, I think it helps with some healing of, of at least some of my clients to know that they are in charge. Um, I think that the difference between criminal and civil is, is significant. In a criminal case, the um, parties are the government and the defendant, the specific perpetrator. Um, a victim is not a witness, is not a, a party to the, in a criminal case. The victim is a witness. So the victim really has no control over that process. And so if the prosecutor wants to file charges, if the prosecutor wants to plea bargain out the case, they'll listen to the victim. But the victim is in many ways powerless in that system. And ultimately, the consequence is a criminal conviction of the perpetrator and perhaps their liberty is taken away, going to prison. A civil case is a private action where you, the victim, is a party to the case. And the ultimate consequence of a civil case is not prison. 
the ultimate consequence of a civil case is compensation. And therefore, and, and, and the possible defendants in a civil case are broader than just the perpetrator. So if you are working at a school, if you're, excuse me, if you're a student at a school and there's a teacher there that had been fired from their previous job as a teacher because they were um, wrongfully touching a student and uh, this new school hired them without doing any type of background check and lo and behold, that teacher ends up abusing another child. Um, well, yeah, should the teacher be punished? Absolutely. Should the school be punished? Absolutely. The school knew or should have known that this person was a danger and they still put this teacher in the classroom with this child. And therefore, you, that would be a good example of filing a civil suit against the school so that this, the child, for the rest of their lives, may need to get counseling, may need to get help, professional help in whatever capacity. That child should not have to pay for that themselves. But the compensation they receive in a lawsuit would go to pay those things in future years. So one is more of government against the perpetrator, ultimate consequence, prison, potentially. Uh, the other is uh, it's a private action. It's the offender, uh, the, the victim or survivor against the offender or the and or the institution that's responsible. And the ultimate consequence is compensation. Okay. Um, can you give us... Uh, the pros and cons of going for a civil suit against a predator? Well, remember earlier I said that the, the ultimate consequence of a civil suit is compensation. So the challenge comes when you have a, a an offender who has no money. So you can take a case through the process and get a judgment and still walk away with nothing. And so, and, and that's, it's even more challenging to find a lawyer to do that because lawyers handle these cases on a, what's called a contingency fee basis, which means if a victim comes to me and says, I want to hire you as a lawyer, I'm not going to charge them my hourly rate. I'm going to say, okay, I think what's going to be easiest for you is you don't owe me anything until or unless we settle the case. And then once we do, then the legal fees are a percentage uh, of that total settlement. Um, but if you're going against somebody you know, an offender who has no money to begin with, it's going to be tough to find a lawyer to take that case because you're basically asking the lawyer to take that case for free because they're never going to see any money. Um, on the flip side of that, I've had a number of cases where the perpetrator does have money and they would rather settle the case than have the case filed and this go through court, public courts and everybody learn about it. And so they, they often, not always, but they oftentimes will, will try to settle. So ultimately I try to be very practical and pragmatic with my clients and say, listen, if you're going to go through this process, the civil process, the ultimate, ultimate outcome is compensation, but we can't go forward against a perpetrator where we know from day one, there will be no compensation. The last thing I'll say is sometimes what we do is we sue both the, let's say you were abused by a youth pastor. We might sue the perpetrator for the abuse, but we also sue the church. So we sue both. And, and usually not always, but usually the church 
will have insurance or have some type of um, assets that they can pay out. So you may not get you may not get the perpetrator paying you, but the but the the institution that hired him or her would be paying you. Okay. Um, if a case goes to trial, how do you educate uh, the jury on trauma? Huh. That's a good question. Um, I try to start educating the jury from the moment I stand up to select a jury. You begin asking them questions. Asking them questions that are really designed to inform them and not really elicited, designed to elicit answers. Um, so I'll give you an example. It's not really dealing with trauma, but I might say, um, I might ask, uh, let's say you're a prospective juror. I might say, Rachel, do you believe that the testimony of one witness whom you believe is enough to find the defendant here responsible? And you might go, no, it's got to be more. And I might go, well, how many witnesses do you want? And that's a way of me educating the jury that, in fact, the testimony of one witness whom you believe is sufficient. Um to, to either convict or find an institution civilly liable. But that's the way I'm educating the jury. Every question I ask is educating the jury. So, for example, you know, some people respond to trauma differently than other people. So I remember when I was a prosecutor, uh, one of my uh, victims, a child, was being interviewed in a videotaped interview, and they were being asked questions, and they were sort of laughing in their response. Well... They're not laughing because they think it's funny. They're laughing because uh, their their anxiety levels are through the roof. And it's because of the trauma. So you help, and you know you're going to show that video to the jury. You begin helping them understand that from the beginning. Of, you know, do you, you understand that everybody responds to trauma differently. And the way you re- respond to trauma may be some way, maybe much different than the way the person sitting next to you responds to trauma. Does that make sense? So you start educating that jury from the very beginning of jury selection. And then of course, the other way to, to, uh, oops. <laughs> then the other, the other way to, uh, to do that is through, um, expert witness and hold on. It's through, through an expert witness. So you might bring in an expert therapist, um, who will come in and, and testify to the jury who may have assessed your client, given them a, a full psychological assessment and provided the jury the information they need to understand what trauma is and how trauma affects somebody's day-to-day life. Okay. Um, are things changing in the legal system when it comes to abuse, whether it's rape, domestic violence, or childhood sexual abuse? And you can break the down we just start with rape how is that changing yeah i mean i I guess i would just say as a category these types of uh, uh, sexual violence and adult violence um i think people more people are more aware of this topic i think the the, one of the benefits of the me too movement was it brought uh it brought this issue to the surface Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people learned through the Me Too movement that um, that family members and friends that they had never known before were, are survivors of abuse. 
And so I think there's general awareness, better awareness in our society today. I think the legal system is like the legal system usually is. And that is, um, it's always slow to follow up. And so um, I think we are catching up in the legal system. For example, these these laws that I was telling, talking to you about earlier, uh, the um, statute of limitations changes. I think those are shifting, especially for childhood sexual abuse. Um, you know, they're providing we're providing survivors a longer period of time in which to come to court. Um, I think that the whole non-disclosure agreements, which we hear a lot about, which used to be pretty standard with these types of cases and settlements where you would sign an agreement, you would get money, but in exchange for that money within that agreement, you would agree never to ever talk about the situation again. Well, that's that, largely that's gone by the wayside because people don't want to, they don't ever want to feel like they have been um, silenced. And so I make it very clear with my clients that if you, I'll let the other side know that we are not going to settle this case if they're going to require an, a non-disclosure agreement. We just that's a that's a that's a non-negotiable. We're not going to do that. And you know, for the most part, I'm able to settle cases without non-disclosure agreements. So that's a change. I think we the horror of non-disclosure agreements came out when we saw Harvey Weinstein and how many of his victims had to sign these non-disclosure agreements and, and lived in fear of ever saying anything to anybody about what this disgusting human being did to them. Uh, we also saw it with the Ravi Zacharias situation uh, where, you know, he had, um, his, his victim had signed a non-disclosure and, and again, very frustrating not to be able to, to share about, you know, the most um, profound parts of their life uh, because of an agreement. It really ends up looking like a payoff, you know, it's money for silence. So that's, that's largely gone by the wayside. Uh, I think we have a lot more to do on, on domestic violence and adult sexual violence. Um, you know, I was just hearing the other day, this young woman was abducted when she was running at four in the morning and outside of Memphis and ultimately murdered. And some of the comments that were being made is what's she doing running at four in the morning? And I thought, wow, it's amazing how we can take this situation and turn it around. And whether you intended it or not, you, you know, you're victim blaming. Yes. Um, and we've got a long way to go with that. Um, I think what we have, you know, I think with adult sexual violence, I'm, I feel like we've taken a few steps backwards. I think the, um, and I don't, not necessarily political, but I think the whole Trump era brought us there. And, um, and you know that there's a large group of people in that in that demographic that thought we should be, you know, feeling sorry for the for the men, and that the men were the real victims here. And it's just it's just and it's just not based on fact. And and so I think we've got a I think we've got a ways to go on on both the adult sexual violence and, and domestic violence inside and outside of the church because um, it's. It's no better inside the church. In fact, sometimes it's a lot worse. Very much agree with you there. Um, many of our laws in the United States come from the Bible. How could we use scripture today to implement better laws to protect 
for protection for victims and more adequate punishment and rehabilitation for perpetrators. Well, I don't think we should be using scriptures today to implement laws. Um, We're not a theocracy. We're a republic. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that we can't be informed by by scripture uh, when we talk about... um, you know, all of us are made in the image of God. And so how do we, how does that, how should that, if I'm a Christian uh, politician, Christian legislator, how should that inform me as, as to the prioritizing of laws um, and protecting vulnerable people and making sure that victims in these types of cases um, aren't humiliated, but treated with respect. Those things should inform us. Um, and, and, you know, to, so, so I don't, I think our faith should inform us in, in the laws that, that we put forth or the bills that we put forth, but I'm certainly not a proponent of using scripture to, to implement laws. I, I think, um, I think that gets us in trouble and, and quite frankly, scripture was never, my understanding of scripture was never designed to you know, create laws in a society thousands of years later. I mean, it's just a misapplication of, of all of that. But we can search, sure glean some principles from Scripture. Um, and and I think we have to do that. Um, and, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a big, I think, I think offenders, especially sexual offenders, they need to be punished. Um I've not in my career encountered many, if at any, I don't know, who have ever been quote unquote rehabilitated. Um, and so I think the, 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 the best thing an offender can do is to understand the gravity and darkness of their own heart, even if an offender who, who reports to have become a Christian. If they have reported, see, a lot, a lot of times in the church, the offender says, I've become a Christian. So everybody says, oh, the person's a, a new creature in Christ and welcome him. And he doesn't have to have supervision anymore. And he's not that person anymore. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. Actually, the person, if they really have genuinely become a Christian, they'll know, they'll have to acknowledge the darkness of their own heart and how we are, and this is replete throughout scripture, how we are capable of engaging in any type, just about any type of conduct. And the fact is, Mr. Perpetrator, you have engaged in that conduct. Not, it's not that you might, you have. So you should be the, the first and foremost person saying, I need guardrails, I need boundaries, I need, and I will subject myself to whatever you direct me to because I do understand the darkness of my own heart because of my faith. Um, but we don't, we sort of look at that in the reverse. And so the offenders, we oftentimes end up giving much more grace to offenders and law to victims. And that's got to change. Yes. Um, What advice would you give victims out there? (laughs) That's a very broad question. Um, I think as a lawyer, what I would say is, in fact, my wife and I have been talking about this recently. And that is, I think a lot of victims, abuse survivors, don't realize what their legal options might be. Now, that doesn't mean that they are going to utilize them, but they don't know what those options are. 
And by the time they decide they're going to look into that, those statutes of limitations have expired. So one bit of advice I would give is if you're somebody who's been sexually victimized, whether it was last week or last year or 10 years ago, um, go connect as soon as practical. Go meet with a trauma-informed uh, attorney who specializes in sexual abuse litigation to at least hear from that person what are your options, if any. Because what I what I'm, I don't want to see is by, that by the time you feel like, okay, I'm ready to go do this, it's too late because of those darn statute limitations. The sooner you can get in to talk to a, a lawyer who knows what they're talking about. This doesn't mean like a lawyer who handles nothing but car accidents or a lawyer who puts together wills and trusts. No, it's got to be a lawyer such as myself, but there are others, um, who, whose almost exclusive focus of work is this area of law. Go meet with them. Doesn't mean just by meeting with them, you're not committing to anything, but at least hear what your options are and the time frame in which you have to make your decisions. Because if you wait too long, by the time you finally do make that decision, it could be too late. Okay. Um, what are some of the best things a victim can do to strengthen their case against their perpetrator? Well, you know, I, what I don't want is, is my clients going, you know, out there and sort of pulling things together for their case. Um, you know, I think that, that their case is their case, but what I could say what helps is what I call cooperation or cooperative evidence. Cooperative evidence is evidence that tends to support in some way, shape or form, the disclosure of the victim. Um, cooperative evidence can be anywhere from a confession by the perpetrator to physical evidence to, I remember I had a case as a prosecutor, the child said that he was abused by this particular father and the child, I asked him to describe the room and he, he just remembers a, I'm, I can't remember specifically what animal, but it's just a, a, a pink stuffed elephant on the shelf. Well, I thought, man, they're going to claim that this child's a liar. He's just making it up. So I had my investigator go in and search the home. And what did we find on the shelf in that room? A pink stuffed elephant. That was cooperative evidence. When I was able to bring that forward to the jury, all that said to the jury was, this kid knows what he's talking about. He remembers the pink elephant. They went and found the pink elephant and it's there. So why should we not believe him for that? I mean, why should we believe him for that, but not about what this offender did to him? So thinking through, asking clients to think through that type of cooperative evidence, I think the other thing that can really, really help strengthen the case, probably more than anything else, is getting your client into trauma-informed therapy right away. The best witnesses that I have ever had in these types of cases are witnesses who have been through therapy. And um, I know some lawyers that insist that they won't even take the case unless the client goes to therapy. I don't, I haven't gotten to that part point because sometimes they just, they can't afford it. But if they can, getting therapy is really, it's not only helpful 
for my case, but probably more importantly, of course, it's helpful for that client that they can begin processing this trauma in a healthy way so that they can move forward with life and not be stuck. Um, so I think those are two cooperative evidence and even more importantly, therapy. Um, what do you, you do for self care? I drink a lot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, um, I just try to, I try to know boundaries. Like, you know, I was telling somebody, a group the other day, like I don't, I do very little reading of books in this area. Um, so people say, did you read the new book by such and such? No, because I'm right. When I, when I read, I want to read other books. I'm reading now the biography of Jimmy Carter. I want to read something that's completely unrelated to what I do all day. Um, I also, you have to know how to turn things off. I've always been pretty good at it, ever since my day of, as, as a prosecutor. That, that doesn't mean I don't work at home, because my wife will tell you differently. But I'm, I'm not living and breathing my work. Um, I know I, I love to you know sit and read, go swimming, go to the beach, all those types of things. Even though I, I probably could say, well, I should be home working on this case. That's not healthy for anybody, and certainly not good for your client. Because if you get burned out as a lawyer, you're not serving your client well at all. Okay. And um, last question. How has this impacted your faith? That's a whole nother program. Um, I think, I think it's, I think it has profoundly impacted my faith. I still have faith, which some days is quite amazing. Um, I doubt a lot, probably doubt a lot more, which I think doubt is, is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I'm not nearly as black and white as I used to be, uh, or dogmatic. Um, I don't think I have all the answers when it comes to my faith and I stay away from people who think they do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a very low view of the church. I have a pretty high view of Jesus still, but I have a pretty low view of the church. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's, it's prompted me to ask some really good questions that maybe 15, 20 years ago, I might've been afraid to even ask myself. Um, and so I just, I, I think in many ways I've been given a different lens in which to look through at my faith. And I think that's been a good thing for me. Um, it's been a healthy thing for me. I've sort of got, got out of the small box that I was stuck in for most of my life when it came to my faith. And, um, and I, I'm glad to be out of that box. Um, and cause I think that's, I don't think, I don't think we find God in a box. I think we find him outside of it. I definitely agree. Um, is there anything else you would like to add? I don't think so, Rachel. I mean, just for, for, uh, any of your listeners, if they, like I said earlier, with regard to the advice I would give victims, um, if you, if you so, if you are somebody that has been victimized, don't wait too long before at least talking to a lawyer. And uh, they can always reach out to me. My website's boslawpa.com. Um, they can reach out, uh, and if they just want to set up a free consultation, we can have that conversation with them. Uh, or they may find somebody um, in their, you know, they may know somebody already. But I just would encourage survivors listening: don't wait. 
Um, doesn't mean you have to take action right away, but at least know what your options are before it's too late. All right. Thanks, Boz. Um, all right, guys. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Always follow us on uh, Rachel on Recovery on social media and your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any questions, reach out to rachelonrecovery.com. Thanks. Thanks.